Hello and welcome to episode number 326 of the Armin Show podcast, where we are learning more, connecting with more individuals, professors, scientists, authors, subscribe if you haven't, check it out, more content on the way and panels, groups of uh, individuals as far as discussion. On this one here, we have the author of this book right here, The Genome Defense. Let me describe it through the subtitle, Inside the Epic Legal Battle to Determine Who Owns Your DNA. The author of this book is Jorge L. Contreras, who joins us on the show. Jorge, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to have you on. And I like two of the topics here. There's law, and then there's also science and DNA and protecting our DNA in some form. Now, before we get into the book, you are a professor of law at the University of Utah and got your degree previously from Harvard Law. Now, how did you get into law in the first place and why the science element of your legal background? So that's a long story, <laughs> if you've got time for it. The, um, so as a college student, I majored in electrical engineering at Rice University and uh, liked that fairly much. But uh, then after my summer, uh, my, my sophomore year, uh, in the summer, I got a job at an internship at Bay, uh, AT&T Bell Laboratories in New Jersey, which was mm-hmm. a, a famous research laboratory at the time. And purely, purely by chance, I was put in the patent department of Bell Laboratories. And it was my first exposure to the law. Um, I had never really considered being a lawyer. Um, but you know what I saw there was really very interesting. And the thing about law that really attracted me was that you could look at technology and scientific topics and think about them, but you weren't uh, doing you know, one project for two or three years, uh, you could work on many of them. And so uh, that, that attracted me. And I went, I went back, I got my degree uh, in, in engineering and I added an English uh, uh, double major because that had always been a love of mine. And after college, I went directly to law school. Um, to pursue that goal. And, and that was quite some time ago, but I've, I've stuck with it and have continued to study and work in the area of intellectual property law. This is a cool item. You have combined different elements that you reviewed along the way. The science comes into play, the English and the sense of communication comes into play, and then the legal understanding and way to debate comes into play. So everything we do in the past always connects with the current moment in some form. That's a cool That's feature. Right. Now, you're at the University of Utah. Why there versus any other location, which that is also connected to the book in some form, but why the University of Utah versus another location? How, what led you there? Well, it, uh, as, as in so many things, this really just related to the job market um, is a complete coincidence. I, I, I was previously teaching at American University in Washington, DC um, when I started this project. Uh, but then for family reasons, and uh, I, I'm, I'm married to another academic, um, we uh, were at the, at the time, um, uh, she was working at uh, University of Washington University in St. Louis, I was at American University in DC, and we were looking for a university that would uh, hire us both so we could live in the same city, a common problem for uh, academic pairs, academic couples, and Utah was it. Um, it has a strong genetics program, as, as you can see from the book, 
Um, she also works in the, the field of genetics and communication. Um, and the law school is well known and has an excellent uh, law and health and science program. And so it was a, a good location for both of us. That's cool. Utah and Colorado and that region has gotten a real boost the last few years as far as from the country and people going there because it's great and it has nice weather and some great features drawing people there. It, it, it's an absolutely beautiful part of the country. It, it's about 18 degrees Fahrenheit here right now. So it's a little chilly, but uh, you know that, that sort of certainly helps the ski resorts up in the mountains. That's true. The snow will continue to fall. That's cool. <laughs> now, on to the content of the book, The Genome Defense. Now, this book is focused on a specific case, AMP versus Myriad, which... I like law because each case has its own storyline. You can look at all the details back and forth of what's important, what's not, how people uh, competed with one another. It's all recorded. It's a wonderful thing for a logical-minded individual, which I've always liked. Why did you explore this case in total and the extent of it uh, when there are other cases around? And how much, uh, how much time would you say in total you have looked at this case? I, I can't even estimate the amount of time that I've spent on, on this, this book. I mean, I, I've been doing other things, uh, teaching courses, moving to Utah, but, but it I took eight years to, uh, to write this book, um, interview all the people, gather up all the documents. So it took quite a lot of time. Um, but you ask another very good question, which is why this case among all of the thousands of other uh, cases involving just patents and whatever, hundreds of thousands of other cases, um, around the world. And, and so what my focus in my, my work is on intellectual property, mostly on, on patent law. Um, and this case though really stands out as unique in the world of patent law. Most patent cases, they can be quite important and make big changes for industry and for the markets and for the law, but they're complex and um, you know, difficult, difficult to understand. Uh, this case really stands out as one that involves a technical aspect of, of patent law, but much more importantly, a bunch of broader social issues around healthcare and medicine and science and government policy. And it's really a microcosm of all of these issues um, in, in a case that was an important case in its own right. It went to the Supreme Court, important decision. So um, to me, it really stood out as, as uh, being important and one that I, I wanted to tell people about to help the general readership uh, understand. Yes, I would say also that it was a big deal. It seems like it had to be that it would come up to a very large case in the Supreme Court because it was about people's DNA and how much companies could uh, lock it down in some form to get maybe a percentage of revenue or something to themselves in the future. It like had to be, it seems like it had to be. Now, well, in, in, case, in, in hindsight, the Supreme Court only hears about 5% of the cases that get appealed to it. it. It was not a sure thing by any means at the beginning. This is a great point that the Supreme Court takes so few, by the time it gets there, it is a rare issue that needs to be handled 
on a larger scale. Yeah, I think uh, the general public might think that just an average case might end up there casually, but it's only the ones that are the key. It's almost like the leader of a company or certain things, uh, vice president. The only issues that get up to them are the ones that couldn't be handled on a base level. And now it's up to real decision-making or thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the court chooses, right? They, they have, there's no rule telling them what cases they have to hear or not. They can, uh, the only rule is that four justices have to vote to hear the case, um, four out of the nine. That, that's the only rule. So it's, it's very much, uh, you know, uh, a roll of the dice <laughs> to get up there. Now, I like how at the end of the book, you have key players in the case because it's nice to describe any sorts of things like that. The beginning or end of a book are really informative. Then you can keep track of, oh, these are the people who were involved over the years. I noticed one of them had the same last name as my friends. And so I sent it to them because it's kind of funny. But who early on were some of the key players? How did this case get started? Um, why did it come up or how did these specific people bring it up in the first place versus others. Right. So it, the, the history of the case goes back a long time, um, you know, certainly to the 1970s when, you know, patent law started to evolve in, in this way. But uh, this was largely unnoticed by the general public. Um, through the 1980s and 90s, patents started to issue on human genes, but it was really uh, an issue for experts. And there were plenty of experts who knew about this, um, but it wasn't until the mid 2000s that this issue came to the attention of the American Civil Liberties Union. And they're the ones who initiated this case, uh, which, which is again, a unique aspect of this case. It's very different from uh, any other patent case that I'm aware of. The ACLU is, of course, a civil rights, civil liberties litigation organization. They've been around for 100 years or more in the United States, bringing all sorts of important cases around school desegregation, racial discrimination, and free speech, um, and the like. Uh, but after 9 11, um, there was a significant influx of funding into the ACLU because a lot of the work that they were doing. Um, around um, the 9-11 the uh, attacks. And, and the ACLU in New York was able to double the size of its staff. And one of the people that they hired in 2003 was a, um, a young woman at that time named Tanya Simoncelli, who was uh, at Berkeley or in Berkeley, California, uh, helping to run a nonprofit uh, that focused on genetics, uh, ethics, and policy issues. And, and they hired her to help them think about how scientific issues might impact civil rights and civil liberties. And, and there were a lot of ways that this could happen. Uh, in fact, most of the ones sort of on the front burner didn't have anything to do with patents, but you know, uh, the FBI's DNA database uh, using DNA to identify uh, criminal suspects and, and leads and um, all of those sorts of issues were, were definitely floating around and had been in the courts. And the ACLU was quite interested in those types of cases. But, you know, patenting was also something that she was aware of because of her involvement in sort of genetics policy circles. And she brought this up to one of the, uh, the, the senior litigators at the ACLU named Chris Hansen. 
um, who had been there about 30 years and uh, was very prominent in the organization, and at first didn't even believe her uh, when she told him that this was happening. It just seemed so unlikely that someone could get a patent on a human gene. He, he thought she was mistaken, but, but of course she wasn't. <laughs> when she finally uh, convinced him of this, this was in late 2004, um, he and she decided this was really an issue that the ACLU should take up and bring a lawsuit about. Right. Now, the lawsuit was brought up and before it got to further stages and uh, there was some parts uh, reversed partially or looked at in more detail, uh, what was the result of the first case that came out? What did it say about uh, the DNA coding regions being uh, taken control of, which, by the way, that was a big part of the thing is separating DNA that is our usual DNA, which has exons and introns, and then DNA where the uh, introns are cut out and it's just the coding exons and they're combined together. How, how did that come out in the first place? So the first step in litigation uh, is called the district court, the trial court. Um, and so they bring suit in New York, in the Southern District of New York. Um, and the case is heard by a judge named Robert Sweet. And, and he has helping him a law clerk that year uh, who has a PhD um, in molecular biology. So this is very fortunate because they then look at this case um, at, at a very high level. So the patent, issue before the court is whether you can patent a human gene. Now, you can't ordinarily patent something that you just find in nature. Uh, you can't go into the forest and find a new moss or a new uh, mushroom and patent it just because you're the first one to find it. That's We call that the product of nature doctrine. You can't patent a product of nature. And so you might think that a human gene it's created you know, within our cells by our bodies. It's a product of nature. But over the years, um, the patent lawyers and the patent office developed this interpretation that, well, it's correct that when DNA is inside of your cells, it is a product of nature. But scientists can isolate it, right? They can isolate an individual gene, sequence it, clone it, um, in the laboratory, and this, what they call isolated and purified form of the gene does not occur inside of our cells, right? Inside of the cells, every gene is part of a very long chromosome that has thousands of genes on it. Um, when you just isolate and purify uh, and, and uh, clone a single gene, that's something new, uh, something that doesn't exist in the body. And so they were allowing patents on the isolated and purified forms of these genes. And the court in New York looked at this and said, um, no, that, that doesn't make sense. Just because there's a gene that's isolated and outside of the body, it still is the same gene as it is inside of the body. And the function of a gene is as an information carrier, uh, largely. And the information, right, the sequence of the DNA inside the body is exactly the same as it is outside of the body. And so the district court in New York held that this is not patentable. Um, the isolated form of the gene is, is not patentable at all. That's at the district court level. Yes. And 
how long did that process take or did it take and uh, how long did it take before this was responded to and taken to the next level yeah so this whole process took many years <laughs> from first from 2004 when chris hansen and tommy simicelli got this idea it took them another like four and a half years before they had assembled all of the arguments and the plaintiffs to bring the case and they brought that case in 2009 at the district court. Um, then, of course, the company that owned the patents was not happy with the decision. They appealed um, the, the next year uh, in, in, uh, in 2010 um, to the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which is the court that hears all of the patent appeals in the United States. And they, they make a decision in 2011 um, and it goes up to the Supreme Court, which bounces it back to that same appeals court in 2012, um, before it goes up to the Supreme Court again in 2013. Usually when an item gets pushed up to the appeals court or further, can you hear the same exact details or does it have to be altered in some form? Are they only checking if something was done wrong at a lower level? What's the main criteria there? So that's right. All of the evidence in a case is presented at the trial court, at the district court. The appeals courts, then they have the, the, the job of deciding whether the district court made a correct decision um, or whether they made an error. And it's generally an error of law, right? So at the appeals court, you don't hear more witnesses, more testimony, any of that stuff. The record of all of the facts comes from the district court. Now, onward it went uh, to the Supreme Court, which was a rare item of occurrence. How did the Supreme Court look at it differently than the earlier courts? What did they look at? And what did they want to say about this occurrence, bigger picture-wise? Right, right. So the Supreme Court kind of made a compromise. It took a middle path. So the district court said all of these patents are invalid uh, because this is a product of nature. The appellate court said, no, the patents are okay, right? Because the isolated form of the gene, chemically, it is different than the gene inside of the body. Why is it chemically different? Well, because covalent bonds at the two ends of the gene are broken um, when the gene is excised from the chromosome. And when you break covalent bonds in chemistry, that creates a new molecule and that's an important difference. So a very genetics-focused look at the district court, a very chemistry-focused look at the appeals court. The Supreme Court then gets the case, and, and they rely heavily on a brief that's submitted to them, not by the company or by the ACLU, but by the Department of Justice, um, who has intervened in this case. And, and they reach a compromise. And the compromise they've reached is that, okay, Genes, the, the full isolated gene, the sequence as it exists in your body with the exons and the introns uh, combined, that is not patentable because it's a product of nature. However, um, if you created a cDNA construct, right, that's just the exons um, in in a constructed uh, chain of uh, DNA, well, that doesn't exist in the body, right? So the BRCA1 gene, it has approximately 80,000 uh, bases. 
um, 6,000 of those are coding regions, right? So if you take the 6,000 exons or coding regions of the BRCA gene and just line them up uh, together, um, as you would with, you know, in, in transcription with mRNA, um, then that is patentable. Um, as an aside, you know, the, you couldn't patent the mRNA, but you, but, but DNA and RNA are different molecules. Uh, so you can patent the cDNA, which doesn't technically exist in, in nature inside of the body. Mm -hmm. How much in this process do scientists join along because the court maybe is not keeping up with all details of the science? Are they there at every step of the way to explain this means this and this means this? Yeah, scientists are heavily involved in these types of cases. I mean, at, at one level, many patent lawyers themselves are scientists. Um, in fact, to prosecute uh, patent applications before the Patent and Trademark Office, you, you must have a, um, a science or technology degree. Um, and so you'll see throughout the book, there are a variety of lawyers who have a science background. Um, but in addition to that, there are actual practicing scientists who are involved in these cases. And in the ACLU case, there were numerous scientists who volunteered um, to help who, who were actually plaintiffs in the case who claimed they were injured as a result of the issuance of these patents. And, and so, yes, scientists were involved at pretty much every step of the way, even up to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the people who were involved, what different categories of individuals had to be part of this process along the way the ACLU brought it up? There were uh, judges at each stage. Who other, what other individuals came along and uh, disagreed with the part or brought their expertise that were uh, important? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, one of the things that interested me in this story, and one of the reasons that I wanted to tell this as a story for the general public is that the large number of voices that that emerged in this case. So, of course, like you said, you've got the lawyers, the judges, um, some of the scientists. These are people who we usually hear from in patent cases and complex cases. But but here we had a large number of other people. The so the plaintiffs in the case, the, the ACLU is a law firm, essentially. It, it brings a case on behalf of injured parties. And there were 20 plaintiffs that they assembled in this case. And those plaintiffs were some individual scientists and genetic counselors uh, who were unable to do their work because these patents prevented them from running BRCA diagnostic tests. Mr. Kazazian. Sorry? Mr. Kazazian. Hi, Kazazian. Yes, yes. Hey, Kazazian at uh, University of, who was then at University of Pennsylvania, um, and, and uh, Harry Oster at NYU, a variety of these people. Um, there were associations, right, so that the name of the case starts with Association for Molecular Pathology, that that is the sort of genetic diagnostics uh, association for researchers in that area. You've got um, uh, advocacy groups like Breast Cancer Action, uh, who was part of this case. And then you've got individual patients. Um, and one of the most moving and I think important aspects of this case was that six of the plaintiffs were individual women, um, all of whom had a diagnosis of uh, 
the BRCA mutation and had breast or ovarian cancer or both, um, but were unable to be tested uh, because of the, um, the high cost of the test or the fact that they didn't meet eligibility criteria for the test offered by the patent holding company. Um, and so those, those voices became very important in the way the case was presented to the public. Right. I like that you mentioned uh, breast cancer or related gene BRCA1 and 2. It's nice when something like this is happening, a lot of items are illuminated like, oh, this was the important gene that was relevant at the time. Maybe uh, an Alzheimer's related gene was not. And so it didn't fit that moment in time. What would you say are some other illuminations that came out through the process of the case that this was important or we are uh, focusing on this category or this is what scientists care about? So, so there are a lot of general observations that, that this case helps us make, right? It, it, there is at the core this very technical issue of patent law about uh, what is a product of nature, but, but the case is interesting for all of the other side issues, right? And access to medicine, access to healthcare, you know, does the patent system uh, actually help or hinder, um, you know, sort of public health and society at large? The, the arguments uh, in support of patents are very sensible. Research and development is quite expensive, especially in the biomedical field. You've got to spend years and millions of dollars getting FDA approval for drugs and therapies and vaccines and the like. And what company is going to do that if the day after they put a product on the market, others can just copy it? Um, you know, the, those, those copiers didn't spend the money on the R&D. And so without giving some exclusive period to a patent holder, um, you know, no one's going to have the incentive to spend all of that money on the R&D. Um, so that's definitely in the background here. But against that is the problem of people who could be diagnosed um, for these very serious mutations that are highly uh, indicative of getting breast or ovarian cancer, um, and they're unable to afford the test because pricing is not controlled in this country. Once you have a patent, you can charge whatever you want, um, which leads to the question of healthcare coverage and insurance in this country, right? This is another big issue that, that got illuminated. A patent holder can charge whatever they want generally for a product. Uh, you know, Apple has thousands of patents that cover the iPhone and they charge a lot for it. But if they charge $50,000 for an iPhone, no one's going to buy it. Um, you know, so they're not going to charge $2 um, because then they won't recoup their R&D costs. But, you know, whatever, they're charging $800 for it. And enough people buy it. Hey, the market um, sort of settles on that price. Um, healthcare is, is different uh, right? There, uh, when there's a patent. A, there's no competition for this uh, uh, patented test. Only one company can offer it. If they set their price at $50,000, very few people can afford it. In, you know, most of these wellness tests that we get when we go to the doctor for a wellness check, a cholesterol, blood sugar level, they're, they're inexpensive. They're 50, 75, $100. The, the BRCA diagnostic test was $3,000. So that 
roughly, and, and more, the price kept increasing year after year. Um, that was unaffordable to many of these uh, women who should have gotten the test because family history or something indicated they might have hereditary uh, cancer risk. They couldn't afford it personally, and it wasn't covered by many insurance policies um, at the beginning. It wasn't covered, most importantly, by Medicaid. Um, every state, of course, has its own Medicaid system, um, but one of the plaintiffs from Massachusetts uh, really illustrates the point, you know, MassHealth, which is the Massachusetts Medicaid uh, system, uh, was only willing to pay $1,500 for the test. And the company said, no, the price is $3,000. If you are not going to pay $3,000, your patients, you know, the, your Medicaid uh, patients will not get the test. And they didn't. Um, and this is really just a function of the negotiation that goes on between companies and healthcare payers. And often, you know, while this standoff is happening <laughs> over who's going to pay and what the price is going to be, it's, it's, it's patients, individuals uh, who get left out in the cold. That's true. I like the bigger picture healthcare that you're bringing up here, because if it's not spoken for early on, then maybe companies or organizations will say, well, we did the effort early on. We will take ownership of certain segments of DNA or the ability to put them in this form. And then 20 years down the line, apparently they got control of that element and it's not really for the broader uh, public. So it has to be thought of in that way. It's nice how those issues are brought up. Mm -hmm. it, it is sort of a story. Actually, I want to put that in a quote from the back of the book from <laughs> Mark Lemley. It describes a way that the book was written, uh, how the Supreme Court stopped the patenting of the human genome in such an engaging style that's almost reading like a legal thriller. It has all the elements and people jumping in along the way, which makes it more interesting, which is true. People voice their concerns at each step. And uh, if it's not looked at at the beginning as uh, we need to think what will be relevant 10, 20, 30 years from now, then uh, when we get to 20 years from now, we're in a limited capacity as a society of sorts. Now, um, that's the outcome of the case. What, how, where does that leave us at this current time as far as items related to this? Does that impact how um, courts or researchers can do things in 2021? It does. This, this case has had a significant impact in a lot of different ways. And so at, at the most basic level, um, the cost of BRCA screening dropped dramatically, uh, immediately, right? The, literally the day that the Supreme Court announced its opinion, uh, competitors were announcing, we are now going to offer BRCA testing at half the price. Um, and, and today, you know, you, you get 23andMe and 23andMe will screen for uh, the significant BRCA mutations. Um, so, you know, I don't know what that is, $99 or something, you know, quite uh, quite affordable. Now, I, I don't know if I would, you know, definitely if I would uh, 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 consent to getting some sort of uh, medical procedure based on a 23andMe result, um, but if nothing else, it, it does, you know, demonstrate how, the, how competition in markets does help consumers, prices drop when there's competition. Um, so that's at the, the level of BRCA. But one of the important things about this case was that the ACLU challenged patents on the BRCA genes, but the Supreme Court's holding applies to every 
patent covering human genes. And there were lots of, lots of them. Uh, by 2005, MIT researchers estimated that 20% of the human genes, right? That's like thousands of human genes had some kind of patent coverage. Um, so all of a sudden, in 2013, all of that um, was uh, eliminated. And, and so this, this has had impacts in many different areas, not just breast cancer screening, all sorts of diagnostic tests. Um, but it's had impact even beyond human genes, right? This principle that you can't patent naturally occurring DNA sequences has also, uh, also applies to uh, non-human um, genomes and sequences. And most relevant today is the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus, right? Um, so if you look back uh, to previous uh, epidemic uh, viral outbreaks like uh, uh, MEMS and uh, H1N1 um, that occurred before this case, when very soon after the viral agent was detected and sequenced, in those outbreaks, someone uh, applied for patents to cover it. MEMS is a particularly, um, um, not MEMS, uh, MERS, <laughs> MERS, the, the Mediterranean, uh, yeah, it's like SARS. Like MERS, M-E-R-S. Yeah, I mean, MERS, not, MEMS is a different type of invention. <laughs> um, but, but the sequence, uh, patents were applied on the sequences of these uh, earlier uh, viral RNA sequences very soon after they were discovered. And that caused a lot of problems for researchers uh, who were trying to investigate, um, who were trying to come up with vaccines and, and therapeutics targeted at, um, at these viruses. With SARS-CoV-2, that didn't happen. Um, the researchers who first sequenced it very soon, early right in January of 2020, almost immediately released it to uh, GenBank and other public databases. There was no patent coverage and that allowed researchers all around the world very quickly to mobilize, download the sequences and, and start to research. And we've had a phenomenal um, and record-breaking, uh, you know, scientific endeavor to create vaccines for uh, this virus. And, and that most likely would have been slower. Um, had patents still been available on naturally occurring uh, DNA or RNA sequences. It would be a limiting factor. And so they thought to themselves, we need to make it so that in the future, something like this can be readily responded to and put out. I think you had included that somewhere in there where I read it that some items now, the next day, once it's found, it has to be put out publicly or it's put out publicly within a day. That's good for the general well-being of the people. Now, uh, are there any other cases separate from this case that were along the same lines in recent years or that come up now? Or is the general issue taken care of and then similar cases wouldn't show up? Well, there, there have been follow-on cases. Um, the product of nature doctrine in the Supreme Court has now clarified, um, has had had uh, an effect uh, uh, the year after this case. So in 2014, there was a case um, involving Dolly the sheep, right? If you remember, yeah. uh, the Roslyn uh, Institute in, in Scotland uh, came up with the, uh, the methodology many years earlier to, uh, to clone uh, living uh, mammals and uh, 
you know, Dolly the sheep um, had many offspring and, and they had applied for patents on not only the cloning methodology, um, but also the offspring, the, the sheep, the, the, the lambs <laughs> themselves. Um, and the patent office issued those patents. Those patents were rejected though, after this myriad case, because the sheep themselves, even though they were uh, produced um, through um, yeah, somatic cloning, uh, were themselves, like they were created in the natural way, right? They're born, uh, they're not clones, they're not grown in a test tube, right? They're born from a, a ewe. Um, mm -hmm. And so these are not, these are products of nature, also not patentable. Um, but, but just because the case was issued, it doesn't mean that those issues are settled forever. So in the United States, you know, we, uh, the Supreme Court is the highest authority that interprets the laws, the federal laws of, of the country. But Congress is perfectly entitled to change the laws if they want to. And as long as they don't create a law that's unconstitutional, right, the Supreme Court can't um, reject that, right? Congress can change the law. And this, is, this happens all the time um, in the patent law. And so in 2019, uh, and so from 2013, uh, immediately there was dissatisfaction in the biotech uh, community about this case and, and other related cases um, relating to what you could or could not patent. And, and so by 2019, um, a couple of senators introduced a bill uh, that would explicitly override all the Supreme Court decisions that related to patent eligibility, what you could or could not patent. Basically, get rid of this case and, and all of the other cases like it, so that you would go back to a time where you could patent naturally occurring substances. Um, that bill kind of died out, uh, again, 2019 uh, led to the COVID outbreak with lots of other healthcare issues that Congress had to worry about. Um, so it died out, but just this summer, summer of 2021, um, those senators requested the patent office to conduct a public survey and get public comments on how uh, these Supreme Court cases were impacting their business and the industry. And as you can imagine, a lot of companies responded that th these cases were not doing a good thing for the industry. Um, and so I think we can expect in 2022 in the next session of Congress that there probably will be more legislation introduced again, uh, seeking to get the Supreme Court cases overturned. It continues to be current. Usually when there's a two-sided uh, conflict of sorts, uh, one side may not do well in the end result, but it's not like they disappeared and they may still have points to bring up later on, which is like the continued back and forth between people. Yep, absolutely. It, uh, the, law, the law in this country and Moses, it's, it's certainly not static. It's always changing. That's true. I always look at the human element, the people, the storyline, because things pop up along the way and people are voicing their concerns. And I think that's the good part that each person Oh, my company would need this or no humans later for healthcare would need this. But if you don't have a case come up that deals with all those things, everybody's silent for a period because they don't have that uh, platform for that. There. I would like to say one, I like the storyline behind the book too. I like 
meeting of science and law and the way you described it with all the players that took part. Is there a message you would want people to take away from the book or a concept about society that the book informs us of that you'd want to leave us with? Yeah, I think the broader message, you know, beyond everything that happened in, in this case and all the issues that it raised is that the, the law can change. Um, you know, at, at the time this case was brought in 2009, the, the patent office had been issuing these types of patents for at least 20 years. Um, and everybody, myself included, all of the experts thought, well, you know, this is just life. This is the way it is. It's unfortunate, but patents are issuing on these genes. Um, it took a group of outsiders, right, the ACLU, people who really didn't know anything about patent law when this started, to bring this challenge. And it just shows that no matter how entrenched we might think some legal principle is, um, you know, with a little bit of, uh, you know, uh, ingenuity and uh, hard work and some luck, um, the law can change. This, this, the law is not a monolith. It's not a static uh, entity in the United States. It is constantly changing and evolving. And uh, this is important. I think it's a hopeful message that if, you know, if, if people are unhappy with what the law says, they can work in some way to, uh, to change it. I like this message. Items can change and it can also, or tends to be sometimes if something is entrenched from an outside force, that would bring a different perspective at some point and shake things up a little bit. All right, I would like to thank you for having been on the show to discuss this book right here, The Genome Defense, a great discussion of sorts and bringing some knowledge about the legal field, the Supreme Court, and uh, how it connects to science in this episode. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful. Glad to speak with you. And we are out.